Hi, everyone, and welcome to Talking Good, where we explore both personal and professional experiences of philanthropy with those who are actively working to make the world a better place. I'm your host, Britt Hotelling, and today I'm joined by Sarah Jelly, who has over 20 years of experience working and volunteering in the nonprofit sector, supporting everything from the arts to disability rights to housing organizations. I was lucky enough to attend the Fundraising Academy with Sarah a few years ago, and I'm over the moon that she was able to join us today. Sarah, thanks so much for being here. Oh, Britt, it's so nice to talk to you again. And I, I too, look very, very fondly back on our, gosh, we had like eight months, six months, eight months, almost a year together. And it was really, it was an exciting time, and I'm really happy to reconnect. So looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, likewise. So, you know, let's just start at the beginning. What was your first exposure to this idea of philanthropy? What made you choose this field? And do you feel like it was a calling? What a great question. So, yes, it was. And my first job out of college was working in a fundraising department in a museum in New York. And I, you know, I was an art history major and I kept thinking I want to do something in the arts. And I had the most wonderful time because I had an incredible boss who was really, really great at helping you really understand how you could connect with donors and how you could make their experience in the museum really exciting. At the same token, I never lived any place but New York in the the tri-state area. So I left the fundraising field because I wanted to go live in other parts of the country. But I always sat on boards. I always I always was a, a board member and raised money for various organizations wherever I have lived, whether it's been for my college or for other organizations in the community. I just always felt like that was sort of part of who I was. And that's how I kept connected with fundraising, even when I went off and did my big corporate things. And then when I came to San Francisco, I realized that what I really missed was being on a board and being part of the nonprofit space. And so when I left corporate living and life, I actually did that. I went and worked for uh, a couple of nonprofits, first as their human resource person, and then later doing things in fundraising. And I just feel like it was always just sort of part of who I was and I could, who, where I could be me and not have to wear armor like you sometimes do in the corporate world. That's an interesting perspective to have too, coming from, you know, working in a museum and doing, you know, work with donors and things like that, and then transitioning to a board. What was that like to transition from one to the other? Ooh, um, it's sometimes hard as a board member to realize that it's not your completely your job to do everything. You know, you have to understand where your role as a board member starts and stops and where the role of the paid person in the organization begins. And sometimes that's actually hard because sometimes you as a board member actually know how to do things better than somebody who's on staff, either because they're really young or because they have a job where basically they're the solo practitioner and they have to do operations, fundraising, as well as program development, and something always slides. So it's actually sometimes really hard to know when to not step in. And that was actually the hardest part is knowing when to say no. You know, I wonder, a lot of your experience seems to be with, you know, the art and, you know, particularly working, you know, or serving on a board and or working with the organization as a paid employee. It, there seems to be a big misconception that philanthropic work or philanthropy itself is a hobby of the mega rich. And 
I wonder what your take on that is. And how does that apply in the arts world? It is a misconception. And whether you give $100 or more, the organization really, really appreciates you. And it's all about whether or not that donation represents a big part of your philanthropic giving. So say that you know that you can give $500 in a year to an organization because that's all you can give up. And whether you give it to a church or something else, you know that there's this $500 pot. And if you give $100 of that to an arts organization, you're giving a big chunk of your philanthropic dollars to that organization. That means that they're important to you. And that's what I love is talking to people about and under, helping them understand that it's not about the dollar. It's about the percentage of their giving that they are giving to you. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And, you know, it, it makes me wonder how how can we tackle this misconception and explain philanthropy in a way that feels a little bit more accessible? Because everybody can be a philanthropist, whether you're doing something nice for a neighbor, whether you're doing something nice for someone you don't know, you're paying it forward. Those are all acts that could be considered philanthropic. So how would you explain that to someone who is maybe feeling a little overwhelmed by the nebulousness of our field? Well, I think part of it is it's at least in my view is even just making a list of people who are donors can for some people make it feel like it's an exclusion oh i'm not there so i'm not important and so i think that you know we always have those donor walls and things of that nature i think all those things need to go away and you just need to say we say thank you to everybody and it doesn't matter if somebody gives you 5 dollars or 5 million dollars you all just get the same thank you and I don't know how to do that. I mean, I truly, Britt, I think it's a great question because I don't know how to do that. And I would love to figure it out because, I mean, I, I've been thinking about this lately because I was trying to think of like, what is it that made me want to be a philanthropic person? It's not something my parents did. I mean, I don't remember my parents talking about it. I don't remember them doing stuff in the philanthropic way. I don't remember them talking about giving that's not something we talked about ever. And I don't know where it came from, but I just always thought, you know what, this is part of my job in the world is to give away a piece of what I either am capable of doing as a volunteer or money or both. I'm so glad you brought that up because I don't remember stuff like that either. <laughs> I don't know where it came from. I think it was just an internal need to live my life a certain way. And I, I was reflecting uh, prior to our uh, conversation here, I was reflecting a little bit on, I believe there was a, we met when I was 26, I think, and I had just moved to California. I was very mm -hmm. much struggling and you gave me free tickets to a show and I was so excited to go see the San Francisco Bach Choir, I think it was. Mm -hmm. I was so excited to go and I was terrified because I had never driven in a like a big city before and I knew I would have to go and I'd have to find parking and parking was felt very intimidating. And I remember I drove into the parking lot where the where the show was supposed to be and they needed $10 for parking and I only had $8 in my checking account. So I was totally freaked out and I ended up driving around Berkeley and I found a tiny little parking spot that let me park there for like $2. I got to use my card. It was very, it was, it worked out. <laughs> um, but 
I, I think it's interesting because, you know, if you didn't have that internal drive to help anyone, then I would have never gotten a free ticket there. And I would have never started thinking about what I could do to, you know, pay it forward for someone else that might not have had the an opportunity like that. So it it's kind of a chain reaction in some ways. It is. It's exciting. And I think you raise a really interesting point because, um, I mean, I've been giving away tickets to the San Francisco Bach Choir where I sit on the board for quite a number of years now. And I think it inspired one of the choir members to do the same thing. And this woman, her her name happened to be Sarah, had never, she was an older woman, had never been to a concert in her entire life. She didn't know what to wear. I mean, you know, she asked all these questions of of, of Barbara saying, well, what do I wear? You know, what do I do when I get there? All these things. And I thought, wow. And when she came, she was worried. And I said, you're going to have a wonderful time. I sort of, I was greeting people at the door. So I welcomed her and Barbara had sort of given me the heads up about her. I told her where to go and sit. And afterwards I said, so what did you think? And she just started crying because it was the most, she was so grateful to have this incredible experience. Mm -hmm. And, but you raise a really interesting question. How do you get people over those really, those barriers of, Am I going to, will I have enough money to park? Will I be wearing the right clothes? Will I know how to act, whether it's in a museum or at a a play or at a musical kind of thing? I mean, it's really interesting to understand that that's really intimidating to an awful lot of people. And how do you actually do that? And it's all about saying, come with me, join me. I think that that's really what helps. It brings up this interesting sort of concept of talking to beneficiaries, right? So in an it's it becomes a little bit more complicated in an arts organization because to backtrack a little bit I mostly come from uh having like social service background stuff so human sure. services things like that. So I think that's an interesting question especially if you work at an arts organization of you know how are we involving the beneficiaries because on some level the the people performing are beneficiaries of mm-hmm. the nonprofit and in some cases they might even be volunteers for the nonprofit. Um mm-hmm. But there's also the beneficiaries of the people who are now have the privilege to listen to this music that they wouldn't have had access to otherwise. A number of years ago, well before the pandemic, some university was doing a, a study on the elderly and choirs and music, but choirs in particular, and what it did to the elderly. And the San Francisco Bach Choir was involved in that study. And so we got connected up to about 20 different, what they call senior choirs here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And one of the things we did was we offered them free tickets to our concerts and to any of the um, events that we did, whether it was Many Voices, One Arts or whatever, you know, educational things. And I will tell you that going to those senior choirs as the, the representative as a volunteer, and sometimes it's singers, sometimes it's board members, to go to those choirs, you cannot believe the joy on their face when they hear that somebody is giving them a ticket because they love to sing and they may not be great singers, but it doesn't matter. They have this incredible community of people that they hang out with on a regular basis. And the fact that this real choir cares about them, and I put real choir in quotation marks, Britt, but 
they get so excited. You can't, I mean, the joy on these people's faces when you hand them the tickets and say, here's what you need to do to, to come to this. And they are thrilled. And they try to come as much as they can, whether they are physically able or not, they come. And it's kind of exciting. But how do you do that with without that sort of study? And then we've kept the relationships with these choirs post-study. But how do you do that in other parts? And I don't know how to do that. I just don't know how to do that. And I think many nonprofits, particularly arts organizations, are struggling to figure out how do you reach those other audiences that will appreciate what you do? With COVID, there seems like there might have been a trend towards doing um, live streamed events as well to make to increase that accessibility. So that might have been a boon in that sense for an arts an arts organization. Yes, and mm. yes, you got to participate and hear the choir, whether you were here in New York, Connecticut, you know, Australia, you could hear it wherever. The thing that's really different is that you don't have that feeling of camaraderie that you feel when you are in a museum or in a in a at a play or in a theater, an auditorium listening to music. There's something about live music that hits you, Brit, or a muse, you know, or live theater. It hits you in a way that it doesn't when you are on a device. It just doesn't, it's just different. Yeah. So yes, we were able, I mean, it was wonderful because our families from afar could listen in, but they weren't sitting next to you and you couldn't have dinner with them before or after. And that's what's missing, I think. You know, we were just- Because you you talked a little bit about community. And I think what's missing when, with those things is, is, is a sense of community that you, that you are physically with a bunch of other people and that whole business of laughing together is very different. I can imagine that that would affect an arts organization probably a lot more than a homeless shelter, for instance. Mm -hmm. And that brings up a really good question. You know, as fundraisers, we are called to be boundary spanners. And that essentially means that we connect the organization's mission with both the constituents we serve and the greater community. And I'm wondering, how does that show up for you right now in your current work? I would say that it's really challenging at the moment because I think that what does that look like has changed significantly in the last couple of years. And I actually don't have a really good good answer for that. And I think it it's something that all the nonprofits are really struggling with. And I don't think anybody's come up with a really good answer. I would love it for somebody to come up with an answer, but I don't know what it is at the moment. What are your current projects right now? So I'm doing a lot of work for disability rights advocates. That's sort of my main gig. I continue to sit on the board for the San Francisco Bach Choir, and I'm actually about to roll off that board after being on the board for six plus years. And I'm actually on the board of the Development Executives Roundtable, which you should probably join, Britt, um, because they are always and they're, they're really trying really hard to think about how do fundraisers need to gain information about the whole field of fundraising? Interesting. And I have many questions about the Development Executives Roundtable. Is it focused on building a community that makes philanthropic action seem more accessible? I'm not sure what you mean by the word accessible. So define what that means to you. You know, when I think of accessibility as it relates to our field... In this context, I mean demystifying philanthropic work and fundraising work and development work to people who maybe have a general sense of what we do, but 
don't actively participate in fundraising and development. It's my opinion that for better or for worse, that demystifying process does fall on people in our field right now. I'm wondering how that concept manifests within the DER, whether it's, you know, the reason why it was founded or if it's a conversation that's happening currently. DER has been around because Hank Rosso, who was at the Lilly School of Fundraising, um, was sort of the guy who actually created the term philanthropy and fundraising. I mean, he's kind of the founder of the whole thing. And he felt really, really strongly that having um, a forum, for lack of a better word, uh, for folks to learn about the various ins and out from actual practitioners of philanthropy was really, really important. And he thought that some of the other bigger nonprofit associations uh, had gotten away from some of the smaller players. And he felt really, really strongly that DER really solved a, a niche problem that no one else was solving. How do we actually try to get to a diverse audience? Well, you know, interestingly, we're actually doing fairly well by being virtual because it allows people, because we always did things over the lunch hour, sort of 11.45 to 1.30. And we had them in a variety of places, both San Francisco and Oakland. And quite frankly, having them on Zoom has been really kind of nice because it means more people can come from further away so that you could be in North Marin and North Contra Costa County or the Central Valley uh, and still come to one of our activities. What we are finding, though, is, which I think is something I sort of just talked about, is that the whole idea of community is still missing on the Zoom format. And so we've started doing what we call, you know, socials, which aren't about learning anything, but it's more about learning about each other. And so we'll have, we were having periodic socials now um, in person, which has actually been kind of a nice, so you're div div divorcing the sort of social element from the, the learning and content development. And that's actually worked pretty well for us. Interesting. I wonder, sort of in the same vein, there's, it's no secret that our field has a high turnover rate for development directors. And I'm wondering if, some of that might be addressed by providing additional training to people on the program side as well. Because it seems like a lot of our resources are very insular. Um, I'd actually back up a little bit and I would say that there are expectations by boards that fundraisers can climb every mountain that there is and that the board doesn't need to do anything. So I actually think it really stems from having a better education of your boards of mm -hmm. what's really possible, because, you know, if you've only ever raised $50,000, you're never going to raise $500,000 in the next year and a half. I don't care what organization you are. It's just not, you don't have the infrastructure and you don't have the relationships. It's just not, it's not real. And yet there are boards who still think that way. And, and part of it is that they just don't understand the reality, because, and I was just writing an email about this, because things like, oh, let's go do donor research. The boards think that's creepy and don't want that done. And so what does that mean? It means that you have to guess about who could be a potentially really good donor. And so, I mean, I think it's a big education component that that is missing on boards 
to make it so that the development directors can actually stay longer than 18 months or whatever it is at this point. In your experience, I'm not sure if you've run into the same hurdles that I have professionally, but I have experienced some amount of organizations being excited about the concept of a culture of philanthropy, but not really knowing how to implement that in a way that actually involves development instead of focusing almost entirely on the programmatic side. Have you experienced that and how did you address it? And and I would say that it's a combination of whether it's program slash operations. I would say that those two often suck up a lot of particularly an ED's time. I would say, yeah, I mean, that's actually a challenge. And the reason is most people really don't find asking people for money that pleasant. Even though they may be passionate about an organization, there's this sort of thing in the back of your head, and I'm going to use this word again, it's creepy to ask somebody for a money. Why is it creepy? They've been coming to your concerts. They've been coming to your plays. They've been coming to your symphony. They've been coming to your museum. They've been supporting your, your, your shelter. Whatever it is, they're already friends of yours. They already like you. Why is it creepy to say, here's what we're working on. How can you help us more? You already care about us. Care about us more. How's that hard? Well, I wonder if that comes back to this idea of sometimes people are very uncomfortable receiving. And I think that might mm-hmm. manifest in that way. Ye- yes, that may be partially the case. That's an interesting perspective, Brett. So Very interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, I wonder if I've I've sat through quite a lot of trainings for making the ask and getting people to give and inspiring people to give, but I've, there's a lack of training on how to receive gracefully and how that completes the the philanthropy, the the philanthropy that's happening. Uh, Because philanthropy can't occur if no one wants to receive anything. Well, and I would say that the pandemic didn't help anything because one of the things about receiving is often being in, in community with somebody, in, in person with somebody, and you can sort of, it's easier to actually receive things when you have the body cues. And when it's the disembodied head, mm-hmm. it's much harder to understand how somebody is feeling to know how you need to react and receive whatever they're telling you. I think we saw, so there's an interesting discussion on the academic side of philanthropy, of course, but you know, about the connotations of the word philanthropy and the connotations of the word charity. And overwhelmingly, you know, we do have this negative connotation attached to the word charity. Oh, big time. Uh, it, It seems more like an insult or it's a handout. And I know that there have been efforts in our field to refer to things more as a hand up instead of a handout, but it still remains a a mountain that we need to climb. And I agree with you. And I, and it's interesting to sort of, the words do matter. And I'm not sure, I think it's an interesting question that the, that the academic world is thinking about. I'm not sure what the answer is in terms of what the next word should be. Because I think philanthropic and philanthropy is also a barrier. I mean, is there a better word? I would honestly make the argument that generosity is a, is a great word. Yes. Um, Another one I've heard thrown around a little bit is pro-social behavior, Um, but that might be off-putting because it sounds very nerdy. (laughs) (laughs) Generosity feels a little bit more accessible, you know? Yes, I agree. And generosity could be generosity of time, generosity of, I mean, generosity has more nebulous form than 
anything having to do with social. And yeah, that, yeah. Yeah. And I, I think there is something to be said for the conversation being had amongst people in our field in particular. I, I think there's still a lot of variation on how different fundraisers approach the ask, they approach their job. And it's important to know your personal philosophy of fundraising. And I'm wondering, do you have a personal philosophy of fundraising? I would say that it mostly stems from the fact that I have to believe in the organization and whether that means that I believe in the executive director or you know, the head of operations, you know, that there's somebody there that I think is heading the organization in the right way. It may be that I think that the head of the board is fantastic and I want to attach myself to that particular organization. And sometimes it has to do with the fact that there may be a personal connection. You know, do I have a, is there, is there a personal something, whether it's a person or something, somebody who does something and I want to support them in that way. Those are really important to me. So, you know, my nephew is autistic. And so for me, disability rights advocates is personal. It's about the fact that I've got this teenage autistic nephew and I want to have him have, him have the best shot in the world and to use the ADA to make certain that he's got access to stuff is super important to me because he's my nephew. In other cases, it's because I really believe in the person who's running an organization and I'm willing to attach my fundraising dollars. But that's just me. I mean, for me, it's a it's it's about a personal relationship with the person who's leading the organization. How about you, Britt? What do you think about that? You know, Sarah, my personal philosophy of fundraising is value-centered through and through. I tend to gravitate predominantly towards organizations that have some promise of change for those in need because I've been in need before, as I'm sure plenty of other people in our field have been, and I know how necessary it is to give people something to hold on to when they need it the most. I do align with you when it comes to supporting organizations and on the basis of competent leadership, but even more so than an executive director being competent, what drives me to give is if that ED is ethical. I think it's a really interesting question and it's kind of a difficult one, especially if you haven't, you know, sat down and done that internal inventory of what your values are, of what vision you have for the world and what drives you. And I think it's an, a conversation that we should invite other, you know, nonprofit professionals into, not just fundraisers. We should ask, you know, program managers what their why is, what's, the, what are their values what are they hoping to achieve, you know, by managing their program and things along that line. And that, that actually brings me to my next question, which is, you know, I'm a huge believer in the fact that philanthropy starts at home. And I'm wondering, you know, how do you prioritize yourself amidst all the projects that you're currently involved in? After all, it's, it's impossible to pour from an empty cup. So I make a choice. In some places, it's about giving time. In some places, it's about giving money. And in some places, it's about trying to recruit or encourage or influence others to be supportive. And I, yeah, you're right. You have to weigh what's your role in, in a particular cir circumstance and what does that particular organization need more. And you know, it's changed over time. I mean, sometimes I have 
basically just said, I don't have any time for anything. I'm just going to write checks. I don't do that anymore. I am much more about, I want to be a little bit more involved and I want to have some sweat equity by being, whether it's a board member or on a committee or do something. So I think it's an interesting juggling act. And it it's sort of one of those things that you shift. You might You might give more money to one, but you might be giving a ton in terms of time to another. And it just shifts back and forth over time, depending on the need of the organization and how you feel about that organization. I mean, for me, it's about how I feel about that organization and how much do I want to expose is a funny word, but I think it's how much do I want to expose myself to, you know, pushing that organization's agenda forward. And that's a really, that it's always a really personal decision. And I'm glad you brought up volunteering largely because I, I think volunteering in, in and of itself is a really fascinating thing that we do with organizations. And particularly post-COVID, it's been a huge struggle for some organizations to get volunteers, to retain volunteers. And I'm wondering, how has that affected the arts and disability communities? Actually, in the disability community, I would say in some regards, going online and having um, it has allowed, you know, putting things on Zoom and, and whatnot has allowed us to have more conversations with people for people who could not get out and could not go places. So in some ways, COVID was was a surprisingly good equalizer for the disability community. And I would say that it has had the opposite effect in the arts community, because I think there is something about an audience, both for the performers, as well as for the audience members, that is really tough. And it's having, I mean, it was I would say it was waning before um, COVID for many of these arts organizations, and it's only gotten worse, Britt. What factors did COVID compound in the arts? The, the, the people coming to, coming to performances, people coming to performances really changed dramatically. Mm-hmm. And the audiences are not coming back, not just for us, but for many arts organizations, it's really performing arts I'm talking about uh, in particular really changed that dynamic. I wonder, is it because audiences for performing arts tend to skew a little bit older, you think? Or is are there other mitigating factors that came into play but prior to the pandemic? Uh, I think some was um, that they skew a little older. Um, and so that for them, the pandemic is still very real. The arts cost a lot of money. I mean, it takes a lot to put on an orchestra, to hire soloists. I mean, it costs a lot of money. And what's really interesting about funding is that unlike social services, for example, where you can see the end result because, you know, there might be a new homeless shelter, you fed this many people through Meals on Wheels or whatever it might be, how do you actually quantify what you have done for somebody in an arts organization, whether it's theater, an orchestra, whatever it might be, live music, it doesn't make it, whatever it is, how do you quantify that? And what we are finding is, and this is certainly true of um, the San Francisco grants for the arts, if it doesn't produce economic um, benefit to the city of San Francisco, we're not funding you. Hmm. So it is what it is. That's that's a really interesting issue. And I wonder how much of it is faced by environmental organizations to some extent, because you're right, the 
the public good in in that sense can't easily be quantified. So you're forced to look at it as an investment. And as far as the in, an environmental organization goes, you can you can point to climate change, you can point to community beautification, you can point to these still like solid things that'll bear results over time. So that is an interesting question I for the arts community to to answer. I think it's going to be interesting and I think it's going to be I mean my father-in-law was really an interesting man and he grew up in a time when he said I was a terrible musician but I played cello all through elementary and high school and I may have been a terrible musician but playing that instrument meant that I really appreciated going to the symphony and he went for his entire life to the symphony and he loved listening to live music and you know i feel like there you know and he said and and he came from nothing i mean absolutely immigrant family nothing and he said if it hadn't been for the fact that i had music all of my childhood through the schools i wouldn't have appreciated it and it made my life much richer but how do you quantify that how do you quantify that a part of me, the part of me that really likes research and, and things like that, a part of me wants to know more about how taking music classes could impact kids in school as far as, you know, their STEM scores and their other abilities. But yeah, that's a great question. You know, Sarah, we've covered a lot of topics today, and I'm wondering, what's the primary takeaway you want our listeners to have after hearing this episode of Talking Good? I hope that people get excited about volunteering for an organization. And that can mean whatever it means to everybody. It could be spending an hour doing something at a at a food bank or whatever. But I just hope that people get excited about participating in their community through the nonprofits that are doing interesting things. Because I think a couple of things happen. You meet interesting people who maybe aren't the same as you are, and that's kind of interesting and fun. You can have a really big impact, even if it's an hour or two every week or every other week. That's important. And I'd be really interested to know, sort of dovetailing on our conversation about my father-in-law and you know, sort of how music changed him, how does that change you? Because I will tell you that when I participate in these things and I see what happens, it makes me feel great. And I hope it makes other people feel great. That was a beautiful sentiment. Um, and, you know, one last question, Sarah. What current projects are you working on and how can our listeners reach you? Oh, you can reach me at sarah.jelly, J-E-L-L-E-Y, at gmail.com. And I would love it if people would start going to the theater, going to the arts, going to music, you know, go and get one of those tickets and go and support these artists. That's what I'd really love because, Britt, if you were still in town, I would send you another ticket to the San Francisco Bach Choir. Oh, my goodness. I think I could afford parking this time. <laughs> um, but I would love to, I mean, you know, I just, to me, it's going to live performances and I'm hoping that people will will start doing that again. And do something that's outside your comfort zone. Go do something that you've never heard of before, whether it's something from the 17th century or something from the 21st century, just go and listen to music, dance, whatever it is. Go and do something that you've never done before and go with an open mind. And I hope that people do. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Sarah. It's been a pleasure. 
Well, Britt, thanks so much and for letting me chat a little bit about a subject that means a lot to me and has for a long time, actually. Well, everyone, that's it for this episode of Talking Good. If you enjoyed it as much as we did, be sure to subscribe on your podcast platform of choice and give us a five-star rating. I'm Britt Hotelling, and I'll see you next time.